This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm from Westwards. I'm program manager there. And today I'm talking to someone who's had a little bit to do with Westwards over the last few years. James Alasi, how are you, James? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? Oh, look, I'm all right. I'm all right. So uh, let's just get straight into it. You're a, uh, you're a playwright, I suppose, is the first, um, the first thing we'd mention. Uh, but you're a whole bunch of other things as well, including a screenwriter now and a teacher. And so what I wanted to talk yeah. to you about today is uh, making that transition from one form of writing of, uh, for stage to the other. But before that, let's have a little bit of background. So you live you lived down near Campbelltown. You, up until last year, were a, an English teacher of 10 years. I think you were at Condell Park High School, I think you said. That's correct, yes. What, what drew you to teaching and English teaching? Originally, I, I wanted to go into teaching to sort of um, stop bullying. That was my initial intention about, I don't know, 12 years ago. Because my high schooling was quite uh, rough. It was um, dealt with a lot of bullying because of my cultural background. I went to school in the Southern Highlands. And so I, for me, it was sort of, how can I better this situation going forward? And I realized, you know, I'll be a teacher, but on the other side of the table um, in the classroom. And that was my initial sort of thought process becoming a teacher to be honest and then I fell in love with um, te- uh, teaching English stories and and what I can uh, sort of do to benefit kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and so I maintain a lot of my profession in teaching in certain areas where I could be of assistance especially if these kids see another male from a similar background uh, that exposure in itself hopefully it plants the seed for them to better their lives in a certain situation. So your fa- your family background is what, Lebanese? Yeah, my parents are Lebanese. I was born here. Mm-hmm. Um, they came in the mid-70s during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was born here in Sydney. But, um, and they've always made sure that we re- you know, retain our culture and we, um, you know, we don't forget where our roots lay. So... I've, I've had the best of both worlds. I've had, you know, the Australian culture, and, but also the Lebanese, and I've kind of married the two. Obviously, it, in saying that, <laughs> it sounds so smooth, but um, it's absolutely the opposite. It's been quite um, a journey trying to uh, create sort of that, that marriage of two cultures. I consider myself second-generation Lebanese. So basically, uh, you, you know, you need to struggle being Lebanese-Australian, but also... Uh, Australian. So at home, our culture is quite dominant, uh, you know, cultural celebrations and how my parents view the world. But then um, outside of our home, I'd have to sort of embed the Australian sort of way of life, whatever that may be, whatever mm-hmm. stage I was in my life, I would sort of get that cultural aspect of being Australian and also being Lebanese married the two together and try to find some sort of identity. Uh, I think a good example was when I went to Lebanon a few years ago. It, it, well, it was the first time I'd actually been to Lebanon. 
um, and they considered me a foreigner. It's, it's very interesting because here I grew up, especially during high school, feeling like I was actually a foreigner. Right. Uh, and they'd say, you know, go back to your own, like all those sort of stereotypical little remarks, go back to your own country, go back to where you came from, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, and I used to think, oh, hold on, where do I come from? Yeah. <laughs> like, where, where, where actually am I going back to? Yeah, indeed. So, and is this a theme that you've explored a lot in your plays? It is, actually. That in, that in my earlier work, that in um, religion uh, have been sort of pivotal in my, my work. Yeah. If I can ask, and if this is too personal, let me know and we'll edit it out, but wh- where do you stand on the religion thing? Um, I'm not religious at all, but I am surrounded by people that view religion uh, very highly in their mm. lives. Mm. They get they get great comfort from it. I think you have to be, for me to get to the point where I am now, you would have had to be in it, in the system, understand it inside out, and then make a decision. So... And that's exactly what it was like. I was inside. I was very religious growing up, you know, and I, I believed everything that was taught to me. But then um, I came to a point where it just didn't fit, didn't make sense, and it was actually causing more harm than good. So mm-hmm. I was like, this isn't working. And I sort of, that's, again, going back to my original point of trying to find out your identity within the two cultures without falling through the cracks. So, yeah, in terms of religion... And I'll always give two points of view. It doesn't mean that I'm right mm. and you're wrong. It mm. just means this is my point of view and that's what I write about. And I guess uh, that's one thing to be very um, grateful for is that in a country like Australia you can actually pursue whatever your your um, your way of thinking is on religious matters, whether it be <clears throat> atheist, Muslim, Catholic, um, Maronite, whatever it might be. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a freedom there and you know, it should never be taken for granted. Um, but in the same time, when I did go back to Lebanon in 2019, before the world kind of collapsed, <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Like Lebanon is seen as a very religious country, but um, scratch the surface, and it's sort of a lot of it is just uh, you know keeping faith and not wanting to be spoken about, or talked about within the community. But a lot of them weren't religious, mm. which is quite interesting. But um, but you're right having that freedom to explore being religious and not religious, you know, it's, it's, it's really important and we're lucky to have that here. Yeah, even if you compare us to another um, Western country like the United States where the chance of an atheist being elected to president is effectively nil. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a government, and a religious from government, I think is like one of our biggest tragedies. Not yeah. in this country, but like in any country that's, religious run mm. uh, however controversial I may, I may sound it never worked never ever worked no I don't think that's controversial at all I think theocracies are a bad idea from the get go so yeah. let's talk a little bit about some of your, your plays now you've had some pretty big success I mean your your first play Omar and Dawn was um, produced by King's Cross Theatre Green Door and Apocalypse and you had a uh, sold out season of that and then yep. you uh, did Son of Biblos, and that was a finalist in the Silver Gull Play Award. And yep. then you were named in 2021 one of AMP's uh, Tomorrow Makers in Excellence in Screen and Stage Writing, and were given a grant to write a new script. And I think that was after, was that after Queen Fatima or Lady Tabuli? 
That was just after Lady Tabuli. So Lady Tabuli, this is a pretty <clears> big gong actually, big feather in your cap here. Shortlisted in the Nick Enright Award for playwriting. So that's a that's a pretty major yeah. major honour. Yeah, it was really really lovely to be included in that. What's it feel like as as somebody who's never written for stage? What what does it feel like to sit in? I mean, I presumably go along and you see the productions being rehearsed and the director doing their thing and all the rest of it and maybe or maybe not have some input into how that works. I guess there's a lot of directors would rather you didn't even turn up to the rehearsal. I'm not sure how that works. But on that first night when you sit there in a a room full of quiet people and they've all put their Maltesers away and and the lights go down, what's that? Is that a moment of terror? Is that a moment of excitement? Is it pride? What is it? Uh, I think those three sort of emotions you just brought up kind of sum it up um i think i write from a really honest um point of view and i write sort of <clears throat> with an open mind and um it is terrifying because i'm allowing people to uh pretty much open up a page in my personal diary and say this is james's life because you know what he's been through or what someone close to him has been through it is quite terrifying but also the work that i write um if i can connect to somebody sitting down and watching my work and they leave afterwards feeling hold on that somebody else that's experienced the same thing as me um then that's my job done i've never read a review about my work either i just don't think it's a positive thing to write to read a review by a stranger um and you know they are they're, they're also a person too and they i just think it's um it goes against everything that i write about I went and watched uh, Lady Tabuli a few times uh, when it was on. And um, I sat next to these two older men who were clearly, I don't know, they were quite, they knew each other quite closely. And um, there was a point where uh, one of them was holding the other as the other one was crying. And it wasn't even a scene where you'd, you'd imagine anyone to feel anything. It was, I think it was like when the mother was, it was, it's a scene where the it's all going crazy and the mother took the vacuum cleaner and started vacuuming. But um, he started um, bawling his eyes out. And I don't know this gentleman. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, my mother used to always vacuum when things got rough. And I've never seen that in a film, never seen it in a play. And I just want to thank you because I saw my mother up there for the first time in my life. So that's the thing about theatre, isn't it, that, you know, if you if you make, and we'll get onto this in more detail in a second, but I imagine if you're writing a film and it gets made, and and there is that feeling when you're watching a film and something awful's happening, you can go, well, the film's that that's been shot, and um, you know it was all controlled, and even though I'm emotionally invested in that, it, it I can console myself on the fact that this was made, you know, twelve months ago under controlled conditions and all the rest of it. <laughs> Whereas when you're watching yep. a play and somebody, I remember watching a play, um, Sydney Theatre Company production of Black Rock, and um, mm. there's a scene in there where what was her name? Amy Smart, I think. She starts crying and she cries inconsolably. She's at the grave of her her friend, and she's sobbing mm. like like you wouldn't believe. And I, I, it was really hard to watch because here's this person on front in front of you on the stage who is just distraught, and you can tell mm-hmm. that. Even though she's acting, you can tell sort of she's digging into a very deep place to find that. And is, mm. do you think that's a? Mm. This is going to sound like a horrible cliche, but do you think that's the magic of the theatre that you're you're sitting watching a <laughs> brand new product uh, production every night, effectively? Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it literally is a brand new production every single night. 
because those actors, they're, they're, they're real. They're in front of you and things can go wrong and lines can be forgotten and that could sort of ad-lib. You, you just don't. And I think those, those raw emotions, whatever that person's going through that day, um, are transferred into the performance that night. And so that's, I think, the magic of theatre. In addition to so, that, you've also got everyone... Every, to use your example, everyone within a five-seat radius of the gentleman who was sobbing yeah. on his on his partner's shoulder, they're getting yeah. a different experience than the people who sat in those exact seats the night before, aren't they? Absolutely, it's a it's a magical thing. I think is human connectedness within a theatre, within a room. There's something very magical about it, and it cannot be replicated. You know, every night is different. It's a different feeling, but it's there. So with that in mind, I'm just going to double back for a second because you're talking about having your um, <clears throat> having your life represented. You know, I think you put it as opening a page of your personal diary for everyone to read. And I was just <laughs> reminded of one of my favourite quotes, which is from one of my favourite albums. In fact, possibly my favourite album of all time, "The Nightfly" by Donald Fagan from um, Steely oh. Dan. And in the liner notes it says, the songs on this album represent certain fantasies that might have been entertained by a young man growing up in the remote suburbs of a northeastern city during the late 50s and early 60s, i.e. one of my general height, weight and build. (laughs) (laughs) And I I imagine you could probably put those liner notes or something similar in in the program for some of your plays maybe. Uh, Yeah, yes, I think think so actually. I think the one for um, Omer and Dawn was a very similar thing there. Um, it's yeah, it's it is like that, and I think for every every artist, regardless of the medium, you know, you're putting through you whether you're you're a lyricist or creating a film or writing a play or short story, whatever it is. I think you the best writers, from my experience, have been writers that write about things they know about inside out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why are you doing it for? Where's it coming from? Yeah, indeed. Otherwise, you end up with a room by Tommy Wiseau, and that's. Um, and- I think he's been in a room and that's where the familiarity with the content ends. Anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. It's um, it's widely regarded as the worst film ever made and people get together and hate watch it regularly. It's called The Room by Tommy Wiseau for anyone playing at home. So let's move on to film now. Uh, have you, have you okay, seen Have you seen it? I actually haven't, no. Oh, no, my gosh. Uh, it's, it's, I'm it's, intrigued. Oh, it's, it's fascinatingly bad. It's... um. Yeah, Tommy Wiseau, no one's quite sure where he came from. He's got a very, he's got a kind of inscrutable Eastern European accent and his skin looks like it's, there's a theory that he's actually an alien because his skin looks like it's been retrofitted to his skeleton. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and his acting is likewise inscrutable and, and his writing and his directing and all of it. They made a film <laughs> called The Disaster Artist a few years ago which was about his life. Anyway. I rec- highly recommend yeah. it. Slash, I will absolutely go check it out. <laughs> it's it's terrific. Anyway, um, in fact, come, why don't you come to my house one day? We'll put it on and watch it. It's it's a, it's good for a laugh. We'll 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 drink. I don't know mocktails and that's, that's yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I'll bring the popcorn. You bring the popcorn. Bring lots of it. There's plenty. Yeah. To, you need to throw lots of it at the screen. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So you you now have turned your hand to screenwriting and so after all all the stuff you've been saying about how magical theater is and i I guess i probably put words in your mouth but i think you've agreed with me on that why why go to screenwriting what's the appeal there my love has always been film uh if if i was to say that uh 
you know, is there anything else that I love besides theatre? It's actual film. Uh, and I studied in script writing originally. I just uh, happened to, I don't know, my the path led me to theatre. And so I fell in love with theatre. But um, I've never wanted not to write a screenplay or learn about film. And so I think my first love has been to write screenplays for the screen. Um, and I think also you're able to reach much more people that you normally wouldn't through a theatre unless, mm. you know, the show travels. So I think the medium is much more accessible to people. Yeah, and you get a yeah, much much wider <clears throat> audience. And, and yeah. I suppose I, I suppose a lot of that comes down to how much it costs to put on a, um, a production night after night. Absolutely. I, I still think theatre is incredibly expensive. And there are certain ways to lower their ticket prices. Um, but, you know, also, you know, I derive from a working class background and a lot of, you know, people that I know can't actually afford to shut out, you know, $60 a ticket for yeah. every member of their family. Exactly. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit problematic. Uh, and there are ways, you know, there are ways to sort of lower that cost. Just got to think about it and be more open. Yeah, right. That reminds me, uh, so, um, Son of Biblos, this is a play of mine that's coming up in May. And um, the tickets are no more than, I think, $25. So it's the first time I've been able to give, you know, an opportunity uh, like that to see like, a work where I can actually promote the work and say, you know, you can afford this. Come check it out. Where is it Where is it going to be opening? So it's going to be at Belvoir downstairs. Oh, nice! Part of the twenty-five A program. Well, that's a that's a pretty big, um, pretty big accolade in itself, having something on at the Belvoir. So, well done, congratulations on that. So Thanks, let's, let's talk about the, let's talk about the screenplay writing, which is called Karim's Cello. Now, we yes. we've had a little bit to do with this at Westwards because um, we put you in touch with Ian David, who. Uh, is a very fine screenwriter. He wrote Joe's Jury. He also wrote uh, Blue Murder, and lectured mm-hmm. in lectured in screenwriting. I've worked with Ian myself. How did you find him? An incredibly talented, patient man, absolutely extraordinary, and his his view on certain things that I would have never picked up on. Uh, he just brought out things that on the script that he, he you know opens up and he cut in pieces and said you need to focus on this move this away shed this out take this in so it was a fantastic fantastic experience uh, and i met up with ian and we're still in contact and i think he genuinely loved the script as well i think and there was at one point we were actually speaking about the, the ending of karim's cello <clears throat> and um he, he still has a fire in him he still cares because i could see he his, his eyes started welling up a little bit. And, you know, he felt what the character felt. And to me, that that's, that's a true writer. If you still feel after all these years and all your success. So what was the, what was the main main difference you found in terms of your approach when you're, you're looking at writing a screenplay where there's a lot of stage direction perhaps or I'm not sure what how you differentiate, hence the question. What is different when you're writing a screenplay? I think the main difference is dialogue. Uh, plays plays are driven by dialogue. I would always say to a, a writer, you know, show don't tell. But in a, in a script for for theatre, uh, the only way you can sort of drive characterisation and 
and everyone's arc is through dialogue and a combative dialogue. Whereas in film, it's, a, it's a more of a visual drive. And I think that's the biggest difference. You can't write all that dialogue, the bulk of dialogue from a play into a film. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't correlate, it doesn't work. And you need to allow also space for the director to have their point of view. And yeah, so I think it's, it's, a, it's more of a less dialogue, more of a visual component. Right. That uh, is the biggest difference for me. Yeah, we we've been my wife and I've been watching a show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which um which is a a show set in a female comedian and it's set in the uh, in the sixties, and we really enjoy it. But it's written by the same person who wrote Gilmore Girls, and you might recall from Gilmore Girls that rapid fire yeah. machine gun dialogue that actually drove me a little bit up the wall in the end. When spend, mm-hmm. spending a, an afternoon with Lauren Graham, you'd need to lie down at the end because of how how fast she talks, or actually her character. Mm. But it's a similar kind of thing with with Mrs. Maisel. And last night we were watching it, and there was a scene where it's just one of the characters talking, one of the main characters talking to his fiance, who's just told him that she's pregnant. And the back and forth between them, I stopped it and I said to Vic this feels just like a uh, a stage play. And in fact it did Mm. because there was no action in this scene. It was just very, very fast back and forth dialogue. So perhaps it Mm. can work, but is that a a pretty good rule of thumb, do you think, if you're writing for screen, that think about how it's going to look and what what room the director needs to operate in? Yeah, I think, you know, take into that account, it can work in certain situations if you've got that that quick dialogue I think it can work. It just depends the stylist, the stylistic form of the, the film. I think me me personally, um, I think I'm more drawn to the screenplays that allow for a collaborative, you know, kind of work ethic with the the director and the writer. To be honest, if I was watching two people, two two characters on film, uh, having that much dialogue. It, after like you know two minutes, I just zone out. Yeah. Unless it's an argument, and the argument is just driving them to some sort of explosion, right. then I'm all in for it. But to have just you know a dialogue about six six, uh, six scenes of dialogue mm-hmm. for me, it it doesn't do anything for me. I mean, a lot of it is is there's humour in it, so that that kind of helps, I suppose. But I remember that Aaron Aaron mm. Sorkin, who wrote The West Wing, he was asked about this because he has he's very dialogue driven in his work and uh, right, someone right. asked him how he got around that in this exact problem when he was writing the west wing and he said you, have you noticed how much walking down hallways they do and so he'd have what they call walkies <laughs> where you know, the, the you know the the press secretary and the chief of staff wouldn't just be sitting in an office talking they'd be walking and nobody was talking to them they're just talking to each other but they're just walking through the hallways with a cameraman scampering backwards in front of them um, oh, that's really interesting. So that, you know, maybe that's one way to get around it, or maybe you just don't <laughs> don't try and be Aaron Sorkin because he does have a lot of words in his text. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just if you, I hell bent on creating thick dialogue within your screen play, just write a play. Mm, mm. Write a play, put it on. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. That's right. that's my point of view. I, I don't know. What other tips did you take from what Ian worked on with you? So, coming from theatre background, my descriptions were too long. Mm-hmm. I think I gave away too much rather than <clears throat> allowing the visual component. Again, I talk about visually, um, but 
for example, when you're introducing a new character, uh, there's no need to describe exactly what the new character looks like in, in like that you've introduced. It can be shown through some of the words they say, um, how they hold themselves, how they're presented to the other person in the scene. Uh, you know, one line is sufficient. You know, uh, for example, if a drunk mother walks into the door, you could say, for example, Mary walked in holding uh, her beer can hunched over, mm-hmm. and that 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 in itself is enough to give us a sort of a visual representation. Okay, of this character, yep, she's hunched over. She's got a beer can in her hand. There's so many assumptions that we can create, and usually they're all right. Taken to its extreme, you could, you know, the drunk mother walks in, she's five foot ten and blonde, and you go, oh, I really hope that Rachel Griffiths would take this role, but she's brunette. Will she die? <laughs> Will she bleach her hair for the purposes of this <laughs> yeah, film? That's exactly so There you go. <laughs> the casting director's um, reading it going, oh, come on, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I had to find someone drunk. That's easy in the film scene, right? Well, yeah, it could be strategic and go, you know, I really want Kathy to be in this, so, you know, I'm just going to describe her. <laughs> exactly, your best friend. <laughs> and they go, oh, conflict of interest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that, that was that was one of them. Um, every, but everything else, like, every character needs to have an arc. It needs to want something. If your character doesn't, obviously, if your character doesn't want something, there's what's the point of the story? Mm. Uh even supporting or even like uh, supporting act, like roles in the work mm. and uh, secondary characters, they all need to. It's more juicy if everyone needs something from someone else or from their the world that they're in. Yeah, needs something yeah. that perhaps they need something that competes with what they want as well, which is another absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Look. Yeah, James Alassi, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us. Uh, all the best with Absolutely. all the best with the screenplay. Is it ready to be looked at by anyone yet? Yes, it is. Right. So it's finished. I mm-hmm. finished it. So um, hopefully we'll get it out uh, very soon. Uh, a play version of it was actually shortlisted for the Rodney Seaborn Award. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I, I thought I'd write a play version of it, so I was really surprised at that. But um, so yeah, the the play, uh, the sorry, the screenplay is done, and my agent will sort of do what she will with it. Well, we uh, look forward to seeing yeah. it, seeing it on our screens very soon. It'd be nice if um, you know, you sc- scroll it through Netflix one day, and there's Kareem's Cello by James Lassie. That'd be nice. I I really hope your words come true one day, James. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> Look, thanks so much and congratulations on your career thus far and all the best as it continues. I'm sure this won't be the last time we chat. I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, we'll talk again soon. Likewise. Thank you so much. And the pleasure's mine. Thank you.